0: get your sugar sugar postpartum deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful library. Happy listening. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about postpartum fertility, so what are some signs that your fertility is returning after giving birth? And how does breastfeeding suspend your cycle and for how long? What should you consider when thinking about the spacing between pregnancies? Lisa Hendrickson Jack has answers to this and so much more. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast. Talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, Mighty Parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you so very much for listening and for all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, then tell your friends, tell everybody, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. All right, my guest today is Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, who is a kindred podcaster. We had an absolute blast talking about postpartum fertility. And I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. Also, Lisa has a new book out called The Fifth Vital Sign. So make sure you listen until the end of the episode where she shares how you can get the first chapter of her book for free. Okay, here we go. Lisa... Welcome to the show. I am so happy to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh, and I'm so excited. We just, you guys, we just spent like half an hour talking shop (laughs) before we even started recording because Lisa is also a podcaster. She's been doing it for basically the same amount as I have. We've both been at it for four years, so we had lots to talk about.
1: (laughs) We scratched the surface.
0: Yeah. Um, Why don't you tell everybody what your, who you are, what you do, and what your podcast is?
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, So, As you mentioned, my name is Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, and I'm a certified fertility awareness educator. And as you mentioned, I have my podcast, Fertility Friday, which I've been doing for four years. And essentially, I started the podcast to educate women about the connection between our menstrual cycles and our overall health. And so most recently, I've just finished writing my first book. It's called The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility, And the book, it's an interesting journey, Um, you know, the podcast interviewing so many health professionals over the past four years. And also, I've been working with women, teaching them fertility awareness for nearly two decades. And so this book is, is my contribution, essentially, to the field. And again, to really support women to fill that gap. Our education system doesn't teach us how our bodies work, <laughs> it doesn't teach us anything really of anything useful, really about our menstrual cycles. And a lot of what we are taught is misinformation. Mm-hmm. And so my whole aim is to really um, just teach some of that basic information to women about how the cycle works and about how pregnancy works in the cycle. <laughs> And, you know, shattering the myths that we can get pregnant every single day of our cycle, but also to um, just share that knowledge that our menstrual cycle is about more than just having babies, and it actually reflects back to us the status of our overall health.
0: Yeah, and I love that connection with health, and it's something that we've talked on on this show, or I've talked with different people um, about. And I'll link those those shows on the or, or, or those episodes in the show notes. Um, but one of the things that like people, you need to you do need to learn about your cycle and your health and and how that reflects health because your whole body changes every time you go through a cycle. Like one of my favorite things ever is when I discovered that you could fern your saliva? (laughs) Yes. And by that, I mean explain. You explain it, because this is your jam.
1: <laughs> well, I don't do as much of the saliva testing, but I know the saliva testing is used because your it you know it changes. The ferning pattern changes based on the hormones that are happening in your cycle. And so, I mean, I'm talking about more of a different secretion. I talk a lot about cervical mucus um, because when you're charting your cycles, that's kind of that's the huge big indicator. And for I'm sure a lot of your listeners who were you know now they're pregnant, but before when they were trying to get pregnant um for many women it's learning that's when they learn about their cervical mucus and how that changes so um so yeah the saliva is really interesting because it just alludes to you know before ovulation we're producing estrogen and that makes a lot of different changes that we can actually see and track in our cycles and then after we ovulate we produce a significant amount of progesterone that continues throughout pregnancy if you can Conceive in that cycle, which would then cause other changes that we can observe and chart and note.
0: Yeah, and I, I just. I'm just fascinated about how everything changes. Like, yes, your the the consistency and position of your cervix and your cervical mucus, but also your saliva, like, you know, it's not just down there. Yeah. You can lick a slide when you're ovulating and when you're not ovulating. And when that dries, the patterns are different on how they dry. I wanted to explain what the ferning is like, because if people don't know, and this is radio, it doesn't... <laughs> Um, yeah. But today I figured we would talk about the return of fertility after having a baby, you know, getting your period back or getting that fertility back after during postpartum, because that can be so personal and different for everybody and so uncertain. Right. Hmm. Are there some signs like what are your thoughts on that? Are there signs that fertility is returning other than the obvious getting your period and does getting your period even guarantee that fertility is truly back?
1: That's a, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I my answer immediately is yes, there are signs that your fertility is returning. And what's interesting is that, I mean, so you can have your period, but sometimes you'll have bleeding that isn't your period. So for women who, if you're kind of trying to figure that out, um, for women who kind of were cycling normally before pregnancy, uh, we as women get that sense of what your typical period feels like. So your actual period is typically, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of heavy-ish or, you know, um, whatever's typical for you. But, you know, there's usually a different, it usually lasts at least like three days, three to seven days. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is that it is possible postpartum to have some bleeding that isn't necessarily your period. Like to have a little bit of spotting or something like that, especially as your body is returning to normal. Um, but it, it, to answer your question of like, um, does your does having your period mean that your fertility is back? Um, <clears throat> one of the things, like I guess, the main sign one of the main signs that your fertility is returning that you can watch for is the return of your cervical mucus for now for somebody who was never tracking their cycle it might be a little bit more tricky because they may not have noticed before but i think most women who've cycled naturally have noticed their mucus but maybe didn't know what it was so I'll give a couple of examples of how it might have shown up so for some women they may actually have thought that they had like a recurrent infection (laughs) because when you have cervical mucus it can look kind of like creamy hand lotion or it can look kind of like raw egg whites and be really stretchy and really slippery when you're wiping yourself after you go to the bathroom. And for some women, they might see this quote-unquote discharge and be really taken aback by it and end up in their doctor's office getting tested for STIs and infections um, that are the tests coming back negative. Uh, So for some women that may have been how they experienced your mucus. Uh, For other women you may have had the experience and Adriana you may have had this experience where you actually like you feel like you're having your period like you feel like it's coming because you feel some kind of wetness and then you go to the bathroom and then there's nothing there. Uh, So for some women that may be how they have experienced their mucus Um, and so and other women may just have that experience that at some times of the month you're wiping and it feels like you have to wipe like several times before it gets dry so before your period actually returns postpartum you're gonna ovulate (laughs) so ovulation happens before the period and so it is actually possible to get pregnant before you get a period
0: Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's important to know. You, you got to know, right?
0: Yeah. Um. <laughs> no, absolutely. And and I do want to, you know, talk about how breastfeeding plays into this, but not yet. But um, <laughs> but yes to everything you said. Like, and, and I did do, uh, I'm a big fan of charting cycles. And so I did that throughout my life and definitely have that connection. And I find it's really interesting of getting to, you know, past the grossness of like ooh cervical mucus and actually be in tune with yourself because your body's giving you this whole information so Mm -hmm. even knowing that postpartum that that fact like ovulation is going to return before you get your period and you know you're ovulation ovulating by paying attention to your changes in your cervical mucus Mm -hmm. then already that like i love that level of information prefer people that's so intimate to their own bodies and realities and go like, whoa, suddenly after not having my period for, you know, however many 40 something weeks or, mm-hmm. or nine months, now there's this whole new, like, just to bring that awareness to your body of uh, uh, your, things are going to be different now. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, maybe if I paint a picture of the cycle, and I mean, yeah. So it's it's a little bit different because, you know, postpartum, you have, like, you have the baby and then you have your lochia. So you have several weeks of, well, it depends on how long the bleeding lasts, but you typically have, like, a week or more of bleeding postpartum. Um, and then, you know, if you're breastfeeding, then you kind of end up in this kind of suspended, like... You don't know when your cycle is going to start again and so we can certainly talk a little bit more about that later but breastfeeding does to some degree uh suppress the cycle as, as in addition to um skin to skin contact and things like that. So we'll talk more about that later. But um, basically, what happens in a typical cycle outside of pregnancy and postpartum is that you would have your period. And then as you approach ovulation, so your ovaries start to, you know, prepare for ovulation, they start to develop follicles. And then as your ovaries develop those follicles, your follicles are releasing all this estrogen. And so eventually that estrogen kind of just keeps rising and rising and that it's what we were talking about before it causes these changes so when you're seeing this change so if you're paying attention to your mucus what you would typically see is you'd have um, days when you're not making any so days when you're not seeing any mucus and then as you approach ovulation as you get closer to that then you're going to start to see something and so either the lotiony stuff or the raw kind of egg whitey stuff and um, and so that is what happens as you approach ovulation and the mucus is actually central to fertility because your mucus is what keeps sperm alive so you're you know we've all heard like oh sperm can live in your body for up to five days but the caveat is that it can only live in your body for up to five days when you have mucus because mucus is what keeps it alive it filters out you know sperm that have different morphological issues Um, it's the right ph when you don't have mucus, uh, your vagina is actually quite acidic and the sperm can't survive in there. So mucus is actually really central to natural fertility. And then after you ovulate, the mucus dries up, progesterone rises and shuts it down. and, And for the rest of the cycle, you typically wouldn't notice any. So then in postpartum, it's a little bit more complex because you're not having periods like this is kind of you're it's like you're having this really long suspended cycle. And so if you have that awareness and knowledge, you can just start paying attention for mucus. So, you know, for your listener who's po- postpartum that has never charted her cycle, um like but I know you're going to the bathroom anyways several times a day and when we go to the bathroom we wipe ourselves. So, you can add a, a just a step of awareness to that and just kind of pay attention to how it feels when you wipe. It's, it's probably going to feel kind of dry and scratchy, <laughs> um, maybe. And then once, at some point, you're going to notice a change. And you may notice this, you may notice that you actually have this uh, you know, your your cervical mucus observations, you might notice that it's a little bit more slippery. You might actually look at the toilet paper and see like, whoa, there's like this clear stretchy stuff on there. Um, you might actually feel um, an increase in libido. So I know there's kind of a debate on how your cycle's and your libido is affected by your cycles. But many women will report that around the time of ovulation, when they're making all this mucus, their partners are just more attracted to them. Maybe they smell better. And on the flip side, when we were talking about the saliva and the different changes that happen, your partner is likely to be more attracted to you because you're giving off all these pheromones. So that's even out of your control, but you might find your partner like all over you. and uh, you didn't realize it so what's ironic about this whole situation that I'm describing is that it's more common than you think to kind of get pregnant um, even before you know what I mean like in those early stages because if there was any day that or any period of time when you were going to end up intimate with your partner it's often around that time because of all these other reasons
0: (laughs) right because things are bringing you closer together (laughs) Right, all the modes. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lisa, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about when... Okay, so this is like what to look out for. Is there a time frame that th- this tends to happen more than others? Okay, so we'll be right back. And we are back talking about postpartum fertility. So, okay, my question that I left hanging is... <laughs> you had your baby. Is there a window of weeks or months when, when there is a higher likelihood that this ovulation is going to return, even though it's so personal and individual for everybody and depending if they're breastfeeding or not, but is there like a, a window that opens up?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, you pointed out that there's a lot of kind of individual variability in there. Um, And I would say one of the biggest factors, of course, is whether or not you breastfeed. So for women who don't breastfeed for whatever reason, excuse me, or breastfeed for like a short period of time. um, So let's just start with like, if you're not breastfeeding, it's possible for your fertility to return quite quickly. So breastfeeding, um, when your baby is suckling on your breast, uh, your baby is then triggering the release of all this oxytocin. So we call it the love hormone. And for any of your listeners who have breastfed, you feel it. It's so funny. Um, Adrienne, maybe you can, I don't know if you've, you've, you know, had that experience as well, but it's like you can actually feel it. You're staring into your baby's eyes and there's like all this love hormone that's released. It's the same hormone that's released when we have an orgasm, but I know like there's nothing... There's nothing sexual about breastfeeding, it can actually be quite painful, (laughs) um, depending on the how that all goes. But I always like to just clarify that because, because it's the same love hormone. But, um, but what's interesting is that, you know, as you're breastfeeding, you're releasing a hormone called prolactin. And this has a suppressive effect on the cycle, uh, specifically um, suppressing ovulation from happening. So if you're not breastfeeding, um, it can be kind of alarming how quickly your your period can come back. So it could come back within the first month or two. Um, and that's when we hear about, you know, Irish twins uh, <clears throat> being born within a year. But um, when you are breastfeeding, uh, there's, there's several factors that are going to determine kind of uh, to some degree how long your cycles are going to be suppressed. And so, of course, one of them is breastfeeding because there's a lot of differences in terms of how frequently you might breastfeed. So um, there's something called ecological breastfeeding, which is, you know, Breastfeeding on demand and all the skin-to-skin contact, and you know, not putting your baby on a schedule. And essentially, what it boils down to is, like, the more you breastfeed, the more frequently, the more skin-to-skin contact, the more likely it is that your cycle is going to be suppressed for a longer period of time. And so, you know, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, um, baby skin-to-skin, you know, quite a bit. Uh, we can't, like, I couldn't sit on the podcast and say there's a guarantee that your cycles are going to be um, suppressed by so long, because it's just not, it's not responsible to say that because there is some variability. But if you're breastfeeding exclusively, and you've got lots of skin to skin, um, you can expect that that can be longer. Now, for some women, that might be three months, others, it might be six months, um, even nine months or a year. Uh, And other women, it really depends. So for example, for some women, their cycles will be suppressed when they're kind of exclusively breastfeeding. And once their baby starts to sleep longer periods of time, you know, sleep through the night and go through longer stretches where you're not breastfeeding, for some women that kind of change and shift might mark the return of their their, their ovulation. Um, for other women, it might be around the six month mark when they're introducing solid foods. But it really depends because some women even continue like some women even after they're introducing solid foods and their babies are sleeping through the night, um, they ba- perhaps they're you know their babies are just sucking a you know drinking a lot of milk, but still that suppressive effect can last even longer than that. Um, so I'm it's an answer that I'm giving you, but it's kind of like a lo- a non-answer. Because as you can see, there's a lot of variability. Um, but what I would suggest, again, if, if for a woman who's listening and is really interested in this, maybe she chose not to go on hormonal birth control, so she is kind of in that kind of natural cycling state, um, then what I would encourage you to do is just to start... Um, doing a bit of research, learning about cervical mucus, um, learning about how to check for mucus, paying attention when you go to the bathroom, you're wiping anyways. So just kind of paying attention to any changes that you see. And uh, you may then for women who have been charting and do pay attention to their mucus, it's often quite obvious when uh, the fertility returns, or as they approach ovulation, because it's such a distinct difference between kind of before there was mucus, and now there's like all this stuff. Um, so for women, like it is possible to kind of pay attention to it. So does that kind of answer the question? Because I guess what I'm saying is kind of like, It's variable. It could be as early as three months or as long as nine months to a year. Um, But in order to kind of pay attention to that, the mucus would be the thing that you're going to want to watch for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the strongest part of that answer is that it could be super soon and that breastfeeding can suppress, but there's no guarantees. So basically, you do have to pay attention from the get-go if you're not breastfeeding or soon thereafter if you are exclusively breastfeeding and also pay attention to like when you go back to work or if your milk production decreases because those are things that can change a bit of like how uh, uh, what your hormones are doing inside of you
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and if you're supplementing with formula or so there's all these different factors that could contribute to how much milk your baby is like siphoning off of you. (laughs) Right. And so all of these things play a factor. And I think it's I think it's helpful because I mean, traditional cultures I mean breastfeeding was a way that they did use to space babies so we can't say that it's completely irrelevant and it doesn't have this effect of kind of suppressing fertility but the challenge is that there's no one template that every woman follows and just by kind of doing the type of work that I do I mean I you know some women do breastfeed quite a bit and still get their periods back a lot sooner than other women and so there's just a lot of uh, factors and variability that we can't it's not enough for us to be able to sit here and say like yes absolutely you can expect your period to be suppressed by for this long
0: exactly yeah 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 and with that whole thing of ovulation happening before your period arrives then it's super important to be in to pay attention with what's going on with your body so i feel like that's the biggest takeaway of you know just as you're connecting with your baby keep connecting with yourself and your body and an opportunity for that to if it's, it was something that you hadn't been doing before at any point in your life to you you have the opportunity to do it now um and i find that it really depends on how how people got on their breastfeed on their on their breastfeeding on their pregnancy journey like if they started with fertility issues then they're very 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 in tune with at least how the cycle works and paying attention to things maybe more from a medicalized point of view than from you know exclusively their cervical mucus or something more just from the signs that their body is giving them but everybody has their unique perspective in this
1: Well, and I think um, it's important also to mention because, I mean, I've worked with a number of women who it took them a lot longer to conceive than they would have ever thought and obviously longer than they wanted it to. But there's kind of like this idea that because it, it was so hard for me to get pregnant the first time, it's necessarily going to be hard for me the second time. So I'm really just not going to do anything to, you know what I mean, to prevent anything. And it can be, again, surprising because pregnancy, there's no guarantees in a statement, but pregnancy can change your fertility. Um, it's almost like your body's like being trained <laughs> into doing something. Um, pregnancy has a creates a profound... Um, it has a profound effect on your body. It's kind of like a second puberty. So if you think about what characterizes puberty, um, (laughs) in order for us to go through puberty, our bodies are basically exposed to this high amount of hormones that change the shape and, you know, changes the whole structure of our reproductive systems, changes our breasts and, you know, all of those things and when you go through pregnancy you are again exposed to really high level of your natural hormones for a nine month period of time and what's interesting is i mean progesterone is a great example of that because the the level like the kind of the peak progesterone that you experience in your menstrual cycle By the time you get to 40 weeks gestation, your progesterone levels are about 11 times plus higher than the highest it would get during your menstrual cycle. So you're basically, um, and then any woman who has gone through pregnancy and then kind of breastfed will notice that her breasts are different and her body's different. It's like your body went through like again another stage of transformation development. So I'm just putting that out there to say that even for women who did have, you know, a challenging time conceiving it is possible that pregnancy can then change that a bit. And so this applies to you in terms of what I'm saying about like when your fertility returns and you might conceive like even before your period comes and things like that. That applies um, even for women who had difficult time conceiving.
0: Mm-hmm. And as a doula that has repeat clients, I can- <laughs> <laughs> You have seen this I have firsthand. Seen this in... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's like great to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's well, been like not that long. <laughs> we're all surprised. Um and happy. Okay. Yeah. Now, I did read somewhere you had I think on the on the information you sent me that there were three main signs of fertility. So, I the the mucus, cervical mucus being the first one or one of them. What are the other two?
1: Um well, the three main signs that you would watch for if you're charting, so mucus and temperature basal body temperature and cervical position and so basal body temperature that's basically you know first thing in the morning you you know put the thermometer in your mouth usually and then check your temperature and so that is a measure of your resting metabolism and what's really interesting I mean for the science-minded kind of I think of myself as like a fertility awareness geek but um it's really neat to be able to take your waking temperature every day and plot it on a graph and actually see that whenever you ovulate, your temperature will go up. So after ovulation, you've you're making all this progesterone, and that actually has a thermogenic effect on the body. So it raises your resting metabolism makes you warmer and it's it's really neat if you think about it but yeah so that's one of the signs and it doesn't the temperature doesn't help you to predict anything so for women in the postpartum uh, who are learning fertility awareness and learning charting you know the temperature for example let's say that you have a baby and then you're charting your cycles postpartum But let's say that your ovulation doesn't return until six months so until your baby's six months old so if you're taking your temperature every day you have basically got six months of like it can be helpful information to to, you know identify a thyroid function but outside of that it's not really helpful for you for charting because that temperature doesn't help you to predict when your ovulation is coming back Um, once your ovulation comes back and you have your first period then the temperature again all it does is help you to confirm that you have ovulated though it never Predicts ovulation. Um, And then cervical position, uh, which is, it's just really neat. So, not all women check their cervical position. Not all women who chart do that. But for those who do, cervical position adds kind of additional information because your cervix changes around ovulation. It goes to a higher position in the vagina, it softens, and often you might even feel like it's kind of, you can feel a slight opening. After After you've given birth, it'll always feel a little bit open. So your cervix does change, but you'll still feel a difference between how it feels during ovulation, like uh, as you approach ovulation and afterwards. Uh, So those three signs together is basically what makes up the fertility awareness method. And I just want to note that, I mean, for women who are postpartum, It is possible to use fertility awareness uh, as a method of birth control postpartum, but it is more challenging if you've never charted your cycles before. So for women who've charted their cycles before, you know, they had a baby, then they've had the experience of, you know, their period, approaching ovulation, what that looks like and feels like, you know, after ovulation, what that's like, and then the next period coming. So they've had this kind of Um, experience of cyclical cycle, like cyclical cycles, is that Mm -hmm. a thing? But they've had this experience of cycling. Whereas if you discover fertility awareness postpartum, then you haven't had that experience. And so essentially, when your ovulation is returning, and you're seeing your mucus, and you're, you know, if you're checking your cervix, and you're seeing these changes, you're seeing that for the first time. So for women who really want to be able to use fertility awareness as birth control method, it is, it it, it can be done and it is effective, but I would say that if, if this is your first time charting, it's it's more, it's, it's my recommendation really for women postpartum charting for the first time is to work with an instructor. So that you can get a sense of those signs, especially if you've never done that before. But it is possible. I mean, I I've, I used it, and many of my clients have used it postpartum successfully to avoid pregnancy.
0: Mm-hmm. Which was gonna—it's a perfect lead to my next question, which was about you know, how we do postpartum in our Western cultures, we have a six week appointment with our doctors (laughs) or care providers, and they kind of clear you for, for, you know, intercourse if you want and ask, and you're usually asked that point, what are you going to do for birth control? So let's take another quick break. When we come back, let's talk about that, like what your options are being, charting your cycle is one of them, um, but in context of the challenges that you just mentioned, if you haven't done it before. So we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. And sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorns roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy-peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors, LLC Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. And we're back. So, <laughs> what are you going to do for birth control?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I, that's, a, that's a really personal decision. And although, I mean, I've, I've been teaching fertility awareness and using it for a you know, really long time, uh, I recognize that it's not necessarily going to be the, the best choice for every woman at every point in her life. So I feel like that's important place to start because um, by no means am I saying every woman should use this method. Um, I do feel that every woman should learn how her body works and her fertility works because for many women... Um, you know, pregnancy is this incredible pregnancy and birth and postpartum. It's this incredible period of your life where you are kind of dragged into your body. (laughs) Your body is changing. You know, if you if you however you experience birth, you really have this. um, It's a period of time where you 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 can try to be disconnected from your body but the things that are happening kind of pull you in and for the thing about hormonal birth control for example is that hormonal birth control um by shutting the vast majority of hormonal birth control like the pill the the patch the ring um, those contain a combination of synthetic estrogens and synthetic progestins and for the most part those types of birth control prevent you from ovulating and basically shut down normal ovarian function and really dramatically change the hormonal, like the natural hormonal profile in your body. So for a woman who's cycling naturally, she's gonna produce her estrogen as she approaches ovulation. She's gonna produce her own natural progesterone after ovulation. But for a woman on hormonal birth control that is preventing her from ovulating or interfering with ovulation, she's going to be producing a little bit of estrogen and maybe a tiny bit of progesterone, kind of more similar to what a woman would produce in menopause. And so, as you can imagine, <laughs> this uh, profound change in your hormonal profile can have all of these different effects in the body, like some that we are aware of and some that we're not. Um, so, hormonal birth control is associated uh, with depression in in many women and with anxiety, changes in mood and energy, and changes in libido. A lot of women find that they're when they're on hormonal birth control, they don't have the same level of desire some women find that um, you know sex is more painful and things like that and so for I suppose the the important point about that question of like what kind of birth control are you going to use for many women who've kind of had this opportunity to, to really be in their bodies and experience what that's like it can be you know, not what they want to go back on hormonal birth control, but they may feel like they only have that one option. Um, So again, it's a really complicated decision. But I feel like when women learn that there's only about six days of your cycle where pregnancy is actually possible. And that's because the um, your mucus can keep sperm alive for up to five days, and then ovulation only happens on one day of the cycle. And for many women, that's like this shocking revelation, like, oh, my goodness, I was taught that I could get pregnant on every single day of my cycle. And I made decisions about what type of birth control I was going to use based on that. Because if you believe that you can get pregnant on every single day of your cycle, then it would make sense to actively prevent pregnancy with a birth control method that, you know, works 24 hours a day. So um, I suppose fertility awareness just provides women with a different option. Cause for some women, when they learn that they're really willing to um, they, they really want to use it. They really gravitate to it because then they realize like, Oh, wow. If there's only a certain window of fertility in my cycle, then I can actually just manage that window and then um, not have to be on birth control all the time. So I'm not sure if that answers the question. Cause again, it's such a, like what kind of birth control is such a personal question for every woman. But again, it's for me. It's really about education, informed choices, and providing women with options so that they don't feel like, "Oh, I have to go back on the pill postpartum."
0: Absolutely, and we speak the same language because that's exactly what I'm about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's why we do this crazy thing. Um, and and let's expand that those comments a bit more of. You know, the, it is a personal choice and it's great to have the information so that you can make the decisions that are right for you and that fit your lifestyle. And that that might I, I, I love your comment on how that might change at different points in your life. So just because you do it at one point doesn't mean you'll do it forever. Um, and we talked about the, the char, you know, charting your cycles. We talked about hormonal birth control. And then then you also have non-hormonal birth controls.
1: -hmm well I mean for for some women I mean um so condoms are an interesting topic I mean condoms are an extremely effective method of birth control. I am a child of the 80s when I was growing up condoms used to be effective like I like okay so I'm making a joke here Adriana but like when <laughs> I was when I was growing up condoms were effective like the the, the way that educators used to talk about them they they would say like, you know, when used correctly, condoms are 98% effective because that is actually like the perfect use percentage for condoms. Um, But these days, it seems like a lot of I don't know, there's there's a lot more push to hormonal methods and a lot less emphasis on barrier methods and like non hormonal methods. And typically, if you were to look it up on any kind of big pregnancy um, or birth control family planning type website. I'm I'm not going to list any names. But um, if you look at these types of birth control, non-hormonal methods are often, it's almost like heavily, they're heavily discouraged and, and basically you're told that they're not effective. And I, you know, I was curious about this. I've interviewed a number of doctors and I literally am asking them, like, what are they teaching you in med school? Help me understand why we're, you know, why we're doing this. And what I was, what I was basically taught, you know, taught by the doctors who I've interviewed is that in med school, um, doctors are really trained to uh, prioritize effectiveness over everything else. And the most effective methods are methods that don't require any part on the user, So don't require any action on the part of the user, and so, um, for instance, sterilization (laughs) is the you know what I mean like it has the highest efficacy rate, although there is a failure rate there, but it's high highest efficacy rate. Mm -hmm. So typically, you know, a lot of uh, healthcare practitioners will recommend methods that don't require you to do anything so methods like the iud or the implant or the shot Uh, and for many women maybe that's not what they want (laughs) so when you talked about uh you know non-hormonal methods condoms are really effective but again condoms aren't everybody's favorite thing so i work with women you work with women it's you know for, it's not everybody's favorite thing to use condoms so um, some couples will use condoms some couples will use withdrawal and withdrawal is like everybody's dirty little secret because people don't want to talk about it
0: <laughs> what's a lot the of... <laughs> effectiveness rate of that <laughs>
1: um, well the perfect use effectiveness rate of withdrawal is 96 percent, which is interesting um, and the thing about withdrawal though is I mean the the typical use effectiveness is closer to somewhere between say 70 85 or something like that um of course with withdrawal if if your partner doesn't withdraw in time you have no method right. um and the one thing so you know when you look at the research about withdrawal the big question as to whether or not it could work is whether or not your partner is going to have any sperm in his pre-ejaculatory fluid that's the whole question about whether or not withdrawal could work. And what I found in the research is that we don't get a conclusive answer. Now, first of all, withdrawal is free and available to everybody. So, I don't know how many researchers are lining up to test it. <laughs> so there's not like a ton of research, right? Because that's not where the money is. But the research that I found, basically it's, you know, there was there's a few studies that have been done where the men don't show any uh, sperm in their pre-ejaculatory fluid and from a biological standpoint technically there shouldn't be any because pre-ejaculatory fluid is produced by the cowper's gland and that does not technically contain any sperm however other studies other research studies show that some men so there was other studies where they had some men that had sperm the pre-ejaculate and some that did not so you've got this like question mark so then based on the research, we don't have a conclusive answer. And it would appear as though some men may have sperm in their pre-ejaculatory fluid. Uh, so that's a big conversation. I, I really like to talk about perfect use. And I, you know, if you want me to go into, I could I could, I could, could actually outline what that would look like for withdrawal. Um, but I like to say it because, again, a lot of, of couples use withdrawal. They just don't talk about it. And there are couples that use it effectively. And I'm not like promoting it. I'm just actually saying what I've seen.
0: Right, right, and, and what is being done. It's like it's like bed sharing with your baby.
1: Exactly. People are doing it, but then there's so much shame,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, public shame around, like, is this safe and whatever, and so then people don't want to talk about it, but they're actually doing it safely.
0: Well, and it goes back to what is everybody's comfort level. I mean, there is a risk that is high. You know, when we go back to effectiveness and what these doctors were telling you, yes, sterilization is probably the most effective thing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: does everyone want to be sterilized right. and so
0: you know the, the the risk involves some gambling for sure and then do you have like what would that look like what is your how risk averse are you at that point in your life
1: well and so there's i i feel like we're like let let's go down let's actually go down the rabbit hole a little bit here because we okay. are already right, right. yeah so yeah. um so i think there's so many different factors taken into consideration so again, what you said about risk, I talk about risk tolerance a lot, because of course, I'm teaching fertility awareness an entirely user dependent method, like the effectiveness, the entire effectiveness of fertility awareness is how effective you are at identifying your fertile window, and then monitoring your own behavior so that you don't, you know what I mean, like you achieve whatever your intentions are. And so every woman and or couple is on a spectrum where like zero to ten like zero i don't want a baby right now ten i wanted a baby yesterday and so the first thing with in general as an adult is that you kind of have to figure out where you are on that spectrum not everybody is at a zero or a ten and i think most people are not necessarily like at the, the polar ends so some people are when you're at a zero you're going to make some specific choices uh on how to manage your fertility and so that's the first thing um that's, that's really going to govern how much uh, risk you're going to take. But the second thing is that it's really important to understand how to use your chosen method of birth control effectively when you're using a non-hormonal method. So for example, (laughs) I was in New York recently at an event. Um, It was the Hack Your Cycles event with Laura Bryden and Nicole Jardim and Jessica Drummond. It was really fun, but I'm bringing that up because some at some point in the midst of this fun day, I did a demonstration with a condom. So I actually like put a condom on a banana and like talked about perfect use. And then I like put the condom on my hand and I rubbed coconut oil all over it for a couple of minutes until the condom snapped and broke. And when that happened, everyone in the audience was shocked. And I could not believe that that was what they were shocked with. I really thought that people knew how to use birth control correctly. Mm. So, um, so the point of that story is correct use with condoms means um, you know, getting a condom that's the right size, making sure to, to um, hold the tip before you put it down so that there's enough room for the ejaculate to come out. And I literally do mean getting the right size. Like if the condom is too big or too small or too short or too, you know what I mean? Like it's not going to fit properly. You have to have it fit properly or it could slip off. It increases the chances of it slipping off. And you can't use oil-based lubes with condoms. <laughs> Even organic coconut oil, right? Like you you have to actually use water based lube and not everybody knows that. And you might actually get away with it a couple times. So, because I hear people saying how their condoms are breaking and I'm like, hmm, are you, like, you know what I mean? Like, are you using Tell them right me now?
0: more, right? Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah. Because, I mean, I used condoms for years and never had a, a break, because I had slip off, slippage slipping off, but I never had a breakage. And if you play with a condom, like, they're really durable. You can put water in them and, like, make them into...
0: Water balloons um, just, and, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't judge my, my, my fun pastime. No, just kidding. But just, you know, just to make a... Um, Just to put it out there. And then withdrawal. Withdrawal is interesting as well, because perfect use withdrawal. So let me paint you a picture. You know, if you're planning to use withdrawal, that's your jam. Then before you have sex, ask your partner to urinate. You know, sperm and urine are going through the same hallway. And so if he ejaculated recently, there could be some tenants that need to be moved out (laughs) so that your method will be effective. And so having him urinate before clears the urethra of any possible kind of sperm or anything like that that was there before. And then, you know, you would have sex, but he has to withdraw before he ejaculates. And that could be 30 seconds, 10 seconds, a minute whatever but he has to actually pull out before not while not during before and then when he does ejaculate it has to be away from your vulva like far away like nowhere close to your vulva because um for example if he were to ejaculate and have some semen on his hands and then you know give you some pleasure with his hands but basically contact it's not you're not it's not from sex that's called a contact pregnancy if sperm touches your mucus you can get pregnant (laughs)
0: Right, because it, it brings us right back to, and I love this full, full circle thing where it brings us right back to that cervical mucus when you are ovulating and it's nice and slippery and it's like this great welcome sperm. We'll hold yes. you and make you live for days, right? And so yes, the sperm draw like, you in hmm. and
1: keep you alive. And the, the last thing I'll say about that is that, like, if you're going to have additional fun afterwards, then perfect use would involve like him kind of washing his hands washing his penis urinating again like no like no touching you until all of that happens and so um when you kind of have that idea in my I, in, you can tell i'm really comfortable talking about these topics right and but in my you... mind i'm
0: thinking like clean up on all five
1: right <laughs> <laughs> I'm, excuse me so we're sure. gonna need some help over here <laughs> but when you think about it that way like oh, that's why i like to paint a very specific and literal picture because you know um, in terms of effectiveness, if, if who even talks about withdrawal, first of all, to even have that idea of what perfect use is? Withdrawal isn't even considered to be a method, so nobody teaches anybody how to do it correctly. <laughs> um, and so then it, you can just see all the different ways where, um, especially if someone's listening and does use withdrawal, they might be seeing like, oh my goodness, I've done this before, I've done that before, I didn't do this step. And they might realize, like, so there are ways to use your chosen method more effectively to ensure that you're less likely to have a pregnancy that you didn't plan.
0: Now, mm-hmm. oh, I love that we went down that rabbit hole because nobody <laughs> talks about, I mean, maybe you do in your podcast, but nobody <laughs> really talks about this rabbit hole. And this is, I, I love it. Birthful, that's where you get stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else. Um, so our topic is postpartum fertility. <laughs> Let's reel it and bring it back um, to that menstrual cycle. What does, I I don't think we've actually established, and maybe it's something to be done like, you know, very briefly, but what does a normal, healthy postpartum menstrual cycle look like?
1: Well, I love that question because I know you shared that question with me when we were talking um, ahead of time. And uh, what's interesting is that, so when you first get your period back postpartum, it's not uncommon uh, for your cycles to be a little bit different than they normally would be. So for instance, there's several different parameters of a healthy cycle. So one is the length we would expect in general, not just necessarily postpartum, but in general, um, a healthy cycle would fall somewhere between 24 and 35 days in the total length from the first day of your period to the last day before your next one Um, we would expect you to have your period and the period lasts anywhere from three to seven days Uh, so if it's shorter than that or longer than that or you know kind of goes on and on uh, then we would kind of look into that a little bit more and then we would expect to have several days before you start to see mucus um we would expect ovulation. Like, in order to have a healthy cycle, ovulation has to happen. And in a healthy cycle, ovulation would typically happen between days ten and twenty-three, which is really important because I didn't say day fourteen. <laughs> There's a range, and the the first half of your cycle, the pre-ovulatory phase, is the most variable in the cycle, and so that's where you're going to see the most um, variation, like in terms of if your cycle is like really long or really short, it's usually either because your ovulation was delayed or your ovulation happened earlier in the cycle. Um, And then after ovulation, we would expect your post ovulatory phase to last about two weeks or so, so about 12 to 14 days. So postpartum, what can happen is that uh, it's not uncommon for the first couple of cycles. For, for women who are charting specifically to notice that their post, like the second half of their cycle, the post-ovulatory phase is a bit on the shorter side. And that's because, I mean, it's been over a year since you've had a, a cycle. And so it's it, it can take a little bit of time for your cycles to, again, just become really robust. And it's also not uncommon in the postpartum period, especially if you're breastfeeding for, say, for example, your cycle comes back and then they're not necessarily like bang, just automatically between that 24 to 34 um 24 to 35 day range and so some women might find that they get a period back and then it's like a couple months before they get another one and others might just find that their cycles are a bit longer or even they're regular but then they have the occasional cycle that's longer and so one thing that I'll mention is that you know in that phase if you are breastfeeding there's going to be times when your child you know when your baby is up late um or not up late they're always up late but when when your baby is um sick or teething or um, just going through something some developmental phase or whatever the case and i know as you know for myself when i was breastfeeding my little ones there was just times when they would just be on the breast like there'd be these random times where like all night they just want to suckle or whatever and sometimes when that happens it can actually delay your ovulation and then you end up having a longer cycle. So I suppose what I'm saying is that there it's there's a lot of variation that can happen in the postpartum phase. And it would be really common to not necessarily like jump back into like perfect cycles right away. It often takes a little bit of time. And then it it also is dependent on your breastfeeding schedule and all of the different all of the different aspects uh, surrounding breastfeeding.
0: So it might be a little wonky for like if you're breastfeeding for over a year, then for over a year.
1: It can be, but it, 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 it. I wouldn't necessarily expect it to be like completely just out to lunch all the time, hmm. right? Like a, what I'm saying is more like if your cycles were usually around, let's say 30 days. So let's say you always, you, you typically somewhere around 30 days between periods, it wouldn't be uncommon to have like a 27 day cycle and then maybe a 36 day cycle or something like that. And then if you're actually tracking and paying attention, you might be able to go back and say, oh, well, you know, um, she was really fussy around this time and I think she was teething. And so that kind of makes sense that that's when my ovulation was a little bit more delayed. Does that make sense?
0: Hmm. Yeah. And so it goes back to detective work and, mm-hmm. and paying attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. What are your thoughts? And we did talk a little bit about this, but is there anything that in terms of fertility people need to consider in tr- regarding optimal pregnancy spacing?
1: Well, I mean, that's a that's a big topic. I mean, I, I certainly have a lot to say, but I'll try to kind of not take up lots and lots of time. I mean, that's, again, another personal decision, and everyone's going to build their families in different ways. Um, and so really, from, from the standpoint of, like, what's best for your family, there's no real right answer. But when it comes to kind of your overall health, your body, your fertility, um, what the research shows is that... Uh, it's beneficial to wait a little while. It's beneficial for your body to allow some time for your nutrient stores to replenish. Um, and women who do wait a little bit longer, so 18 months or two years or more, uh, typically have just you know on that statistical kind of researchy standpoint, um, better birth outcomes. And so, I mean, what I always say is that there's no scenario where you go into pregnancy and then also breastfeeding and end up on the other end with more nutrient stores than you did going in. So I, you know, I use the analogy of like a bank account and uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding are just making withdrawals. (laughs) These are times when you're, I mean, you're making a human being and that requires a significant amount of nutrition. Um, Your demands for virtually every nutrient that we know of go up, you know, vitamin A, iron, vitamin B12, folate, choline, vitamin B6, like it just goes on and on and on Um, vitamin D. And so um, just from that standpoint of um, so for me, one of the things that I do with my clients is I support them to chart their cycles and to uh, really optimize their cycles and their fertility when they're preparing for pregnancy. So I'm not necessarily usually working with women in the postpartum. But postpartum is is a transitional phase. You've just had a baby and your baby, if you're breastfeeding, is still... <laughs> is still sucking your precious nutrients out of your body every day and so this would be a really great time to focus on nutrition and actually do the same type of preconception planning that you would if you were kind of starting from scratch like you didn't already have a baby you know what i
0: mean Mm -hmm. yeah no and absolutely and i'll link to some episodes that are related to that in terms of nutrition during postpartum and during pregnancy and because it is very important not to for, you know, when before you do any pregnancy to be as, as nourished as you can, but after pregnancy, not be depleted before you start another one. Like, mm-hmm. like you were saying, just, you know, it's not just what's going to sustain you through the pregnancy, but also the building blocks for, from your child. And we know those babies just take it from you.
1: It's true. And I mean, the the research is so interesting. I mean, there was a study that I saw on on iron, and the the majority, it was only 20% of women who were going into pregnancy had sufficient iron stores. Uh, to cover that so you know from that kind of practical standpoint one of the things that you can do in terms of like postpartum you're thinking about planning for the next baby you can kind of just do a basic go into your doctor and you know have them check a few things just basic things have them check your iron have them check your vitamin d your b12 you know so that you get so a bit of a baseline you know because sometimes when you see the results and you see oh wow that's a little bit on the low side then that is what's gonna kind of trigger you to look into it from a fertility awareness standpoint, looking at your menstrual cycle, when you have a sense, so I kind of took you—you know—I kind of took your audience through what a normal cycle would look like, what those normal parameters are. So, from the fertility awareness standpoint, then you would actually want to ideally wait until you had at least three cycles that were well within the normal range. Um, well within, so meaning your luteal phase length is normal, you know, your periods are normal, your cycles are normal, you know all of those things. Um, and then I would also add, taking specific time and energy, as you said, to really replenish those nutrients. Because the other thing that people don't talk about, I well, I well, you tell me what your experience has been, but a lot of, I mean, pretty much most of the pre-pregnancy pregnancy type information is based on babies, having a healthy baby, which is what we want. So I'm not dismissing that. But what about having a healthy mom? Um, as, a, as a woman who, and as a mom myself, uh, who's gone through, like I have two children, so I've gone through pregnancy and birth, two separate occasions, I really did find that it was, it was a very interesting kind of tumultuous time. And even when you're fully nutrient replete, you know, even when you're eating all the good things, and I was eating all the livers, drinking all the bone broth, you know what I mean, all the vegetables, like, it was still, Tiring, (laughs) And many of us are going into birth a bit later in life. um, And I I feel like it's a little bit harder on the body as we get a little bit older. And so part of this recommendation is for mom, because, you know, if you have a baby, and you get pregnant immediately, and you haven't had a chance to replenish your stores, you're still building a baby. And at the end of all of that, you still have to be a mom. So part of this is really just to be have that awareness that you are really important we want you to be really healthy so that on the other end of your second pregnancy third pregnancy fourth pregnancy that you are able to be a mom and to feel good to to feel healthy to feel like you've got lots of great energy
0: mm, absolutely you need to honor your recovery it's absolutely so important and 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 it, that's where i find that you need to be a little bit selfish Because other people are not going to honor the recovery for you. And when I say other people, it's like other systems, other structures, like our, you know, maternity. What is it? Our our paid family leave. Like uh, it's not set up to support what you need to become a healthy mom. So Mm -hmm. you got to grab it yourself. (laughs) You got to figure it out. Um, And it's and that requires a mind shift because we tend to just give, give, give and put our kids first hmm.
1: Well, and if we take a if we take kind of a, a lesson from a lot of kind of traditional hunter gatherer type cultures around the world, uh, it was much more typical for them. I mean, it was also more typical to start having babies a lot younger and have more babies. But at the same time, it was a lot more typical to, to have a, a kind of an extended period between children like three years. Uh, two to three years, and that's not always practical for every woman, and that's why I say like it's a really personal decision. Uh, but I do think it's something that we should be aware of. It's 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 hard on the body um, to you know what I mean? To have them really, really close together.
0: Absolutely. No, and they had also other considerations in terms of you didn't you know, if you needed this kid to be walking somehow because if not then you had to be carrying them while pregnant. Like we're, yes. we're not there. But no. I I did find this super fabulous research because I we think that the general consensus is that a baby is born um, when baby reaches that moment where size would not fit through your pelvis. Like because we became we went from quadrupeds to bipeds and so we stand on two legs and our hips had to tilt to a certain space and then we have these enormous brains that have our neocortex and then make big, big heads that our kids are born so immature because they have to be born at that point. A little perfect point where that head needs to go f- to that pelvis like that's the biggest our pelvis can be for us to walk <laughs> upright <laughs> and and the heads need to not get bigger than they can go through and that kind of is blah, 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 around 40 weeks that's the traditional thinking i found this great research that goes that actually it is a matter of resource depletion and it is you will keep your baby inside of you as long as you can until it starts becoming dangerous to your health. Because let's be honest, like your blood p- volume went up 50%. percent Your all all your, your nutrients, like everything that's happening in your body. You have a baby that is taking and taking and taking. So <laughs> that when it gets to like, yeah. And I'll link that research on the show notes, but when it gets to a point in your pregnancy where your body goes like, if we continue, we're, this is not going to end well, this baby needs to come out.
1: <laughs>
0: and That's so, really interesting. Right. And so it could be like 38 weeks, 39 weeks, 40 weeks, 41 weeks, right? Like whatever it depends, whatever that, that is, that equation is for you and your baby, right? And your health. So that makes so much sense to me because it also speaks to the fact that you need to be more replenished before you go into pregnancy so that you have not just for yourself, but better outcomes for your baby, which ties into the research that you were mentioning of that. If if pregnancies are closer together, then you don't have that time to replenish as well. And there's a bigger toll on your body. And so then outcomes may not be as optimal.
1: Well, and there's all the things that we were talking about, the things that people don't talk about, right? And like, what about postpartum depression and postpartum thyroid issues? And I mean, as women, we're, I forget the statistic exactly, but I was reading a research paper and it was like, you know, 10 times, women are 10 times more likely to experience thyroid disorders than men. So first of all, like we're the ones getting the thyroid disorders. And there's this huge correlation between thyroid disorders and pregnancy, um, which is interesting because when you become pregnant within the first few weeks of pregnancy, the demand on your thyroid is significantly increase. So all of a sudden, you have to produce 50% more thyroid hormone because you, you have to produce thyroid hormone for you and the baby. So every woman doesn't struggle with thyroid issues postpartum, but many women do. And many women struggle with postpartum depression, and there could even be a a relationship there. Um, And so for me, I'm really passionate just about just putting out the idea that as a woman, you are also important. And we really want to prioritize your health because as a mom, and you know this as well, being a mom requires a significant amount of energy, (laughs) energy. you, it's really hard to be a mom when you don't feel well when you're not at your best and so this is kind of one of the ways to give yourself the opportunity to 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 be your best because you're really going to need like all hands on deck even in the best of situations when you're really really healthy and your you know your nutrient stores are great and your thyroid is wonderful it's still challenging to be a mom.
0: Oh, absolutely. And let's not talk about the adrenal glands. Like right? We could be here for days. We haven't even
1: mentioned the adrenals, <laughs> let alone the sleep deprivation. Like, I felt like I was in a, a war or something. I, I didn't feel normal until after, like, it was like four months later when I finally got, like, one full night of sleep.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have no idea how tired you can be until you have a newborn. Like, that is, you have no idea what tiredness is until you get to that point <sighs> but so mama's that like everybody parents listening out there really like pay attention connect with your body make smart choices and be selfish
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. and pay attention to your cycles because since your cycles are a reflection of your overall health if you're noticing for example i mean if if it's like two years and your cycle hasn't come back i mean So your question about like what is normal, um, your your cycles, we would expect that your cycles, you know, are are back, you know, between 12 to 18 months uh, after, and 18 months is kind of a stretch. Like if you, you know, I'm saying, so there is still this range of normal where, if your cycles haven't returned or if they haven't returned normally or if you have certain concerns or whatever the case is, something's falling outside of the normal parameters. That, for many women, is the first sign because health issues show up in our cycles in, in different ways.
0: Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. And, and I think that's the point of the title of your book, which is called The Fifth Vital Sign. <laughs> See how I did that? Yes,
1: <laughs> that was good. That was good. I like that. <laughs>
0: um, that is called The Fifth Vital Sign because ultimately your body, you know, to become pregnant, you have to be healthy. Your just in terms of preservation, your body's not gonna do that. it's not gonna have create a baby where there's you know it's not an optimal situation right so I love the connection between you know pregnancy as being the ultimate health, but also how it all starts with your cycle and having a healthy cycle is your fifth vital sign, mm-hmm.
1: When it gives women a tool, it's, it's really nice. It's like this thing that you can do at home and it provides you so much information about your about your overall health. And what's interesting, too, is you can kind of track your cycles and monitor your progress. So a lot of my clients, for example, you know, they learn how to chart their cycles, they're kind of all, you know, all all over it, because it's it's really interesting and exciting. And then they'll start to do experiments, you know, like, I wonder if if that glass of wine I'm having every night is affecting my cycle, or I wonder if those three cups of coffee a day are affecting my cycle. And so then they will do things like, okay, I'm going to take it out or reduce it for a cycle, and then I'm going to get put it back for a cycle. And And then all of a sudden they have this evidence. They have this real time way to measure how these different things affect their cycles. And so, you know, for for postpartum, it's also helpful once your cycles come back to really start to track them and see what everything looks like. I mean, expect there to be some variability, especially like kind of those first three to five cycles. But you know, at some point they should come back robust and healthy. And if they're not, then that's a sign that you might want to look into it further
0: hmm. Absolutely. Oh, I, I, I have to let you go. I don't want to. This is <laughs> Talking with you is so much fun. Um, but if people want to find out more of what you're doing or follow or get your book, well, like, how can they do that?
1: well thank you so much um so if, if this topic interests you and you're wanting to learn more about fertility awareness you can grab uh the first chapter of my book for free over at um the book website which is the fifth vital sign book.com and that's all spelled out and the book is available on amazon and all of your favorite online retailers so um so, yeah, thank you so much, Adriana, for having me. This has been so much fun.
0: Yeah, thank you. And, and remind people the name of your podcast also so they can, because obviously they like podcasts, so this is one yes. more they should listen to. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, so my podcast is Fertility Friday. If you search in your favorite podcast player, it's the first thing that will show up. And then the pod, the website for the podcast, fertilityfriday.com.
0: Thank you so much, Lisa. It's been tons of fun. Thanks so much. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, or you can also learn more about me, the show, Patreon member, benefits, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Sabrisky. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2019 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening.